I invite you to open your Bibles this morning to Genesis chapter 6. We're going to be making our way through all of the flood narrative here in Genesis chapter 6. Um, <clears throat> as you turn your Bibles there, I just want to show you a picture. This is of La Paz, Bolivia, where my family and I lived some years ago. And in the, it, this picture is taken from about 13,000 feet. Uh, the center of the city where you see the bright lights, that's about 12,000. And then off in the background is about 11,000 where we lived. If you go to the center of town, you will meet up with some guys. They're typically older men. And they'll kind of sidle up to you in kind of a sneaky way. They go, And they have something in their hand that's either covered in a tissue or um, maybe a newspaper, something very thin type cloth and they'll they'll unravel it and they'll show you that they've got a they've got a fossil and um, here's this fossil here and um, then they want you to buy the fossil from them now I found this out the hard way. Most of these are made out of mud. One day I, I had bought one, we had bought one and I was cleaning it and it disintegrated in the sink. <laughs> so, so they're not, you know, like super authentic, but there's, there are some that are real. And the reason why they sell them up there is because there's all kinds of fossils up in the mountains. And I want you to just think about that for a, uh, a little bit. All these sea creature fossils that are up in the high spots of the Andes and the Alps and, and Patagonia and Chile. There's just all over the world, there's these high altitude fossils of sea creatures. It's just kind of an interesting question. We'll talk about that in a moment. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. <clears throat> Genesis chapter six, we're gonna back up to verse uh, 11 and then we'll read through the end of the chapter and then I'll read other sections of the flood narrative as we make our way through it this morning. Genesis 6:11. now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and the earth was filled with violence and God saw the earth and behold it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth and God said to Noah I have determined to make an end of all flesh for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold I will destroy them from the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you're to make it. The length of the ark is 300 cubits, its breadth 50 cubits, and its height 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark on it in its side. Uh, make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you, and of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and stored up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Please have a seat. In this first section, we're going to look at the making of the ark. It's a protection from God's judgment, isn't it? Uh, one of the questions that people will ask is, how long did it take to make the ark? We may have a hint in chapter, three, chapter 6, verse 3, when it says, The Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. That could be a statement of how much longer until the flood. So it took, no, 120 years to make the flood. It could be that it's just talking about lifespan of human beings now that 
God is judging the earth with a shortening of lifespan. We're not sure, but certainly what we can say is the major life work of Noah was to build the ark. We know that because what would you remember? Can you tell me anything else about Noah except that, well, he built an ark, right? It was his major life work. Now, this ark, interesting word, the only other time where that word is used is in reference to baby Moses being put into the basket. That basket was called an ark, a place of safety, okay? And so it's kind of interesting. Moses was put in a little tiny ark. Noah is making a big ark. This dimension, the dimensions of this ark are huge, 450 feet by 75 feet by 45 feet. Uh, Some of you may have been to the ark encounter uh, where uh, Ken's Ham's ministry answers in Genesis have built an ark. Their ark is actually bigger than uh, what I've just described. Their ark is 510 feet long by 85 feet wide by 51 feet high. You might ask, well, why is their ark bigger than the one that's described here in the Bible? Ah, it's the issue of the definition of a cubit. Because when you say 300 cubits, you got to know how big is a cubit. You know how, where, how a cubit was first understood? It was the distance between your elbow and the tip of your finger. But as we all would know, there's a difference between one person's elbow to his tip of his finger and to another person's elbow and the tip of her finger and so on. And so trying to figure out what was the standard measure is difficult. If you go by the standard measure of 18 inches, you would get the dimensions that I mentioned earlier. Uh, There's all kinds of different uh, understandings of cubit. There's an Egyptian long cubit, an Egyptian short cubit. There's a Hebrew long cubit, a Hebrew short cubit. And the Ark Encounter kind of takes a little bit of an average. They actually explain this on their website. They take a cubit to be 20.4 inches long, and that's how they built the Ark. Uh, if you take 18 inches, you get the size that I mentioned of 450 by 75 by 45. Either way, no matter how you measure a cubit, there's a big Ark, okay? It's big. Uh, Let me just say something a little bit uh, by way of a little bit of a sidebar about the critics of the Ark Encounter. Uh, You know, when uh, critics of Genesis chapter 6 have long criticized the the description of this this narrative by saying, wow, this can't possibly be built. There's no way this could be done. Uh, and then they would say things like, there, there's no way you could fit all the animals inside. And, and Answers in Genesis built the ark in order to demonstrate, yes, such a thing could be constructed, and here is how you could put the animals inside it. That's kind of the point of it, is to demonstrate what an ark looked like and how it could function. What's funny to me is that that doesn't stop the critics. They just come up with more criticisms, which really reveals that they have a problem of the will more than they have an intellectual problem, right? Now the biggest criticism of the Ark at the Ark Encounter is, well, it was made with modern tools. You know, that, well, of course you could do that. To which I would answer, Ken Ham didn't have 120 years, <laughs> right? So let's give him, cut him a little slack here on that, right? Anyway, that's just a sidebar of the critics. It's made of gopher wood, which is likely pine or cypress. It was made watertight by pitch. It has various rooms. The number and size of the rooms are not described probably because they were varied depending on what animals were in the ark. Some people suggest, well, wait a minute. How can there be great big animals in the ark, you know, like the dinosaurs and all that? You could take baby dinosaurs, right? It's, uh, I don't know. Sometimes people are more determined not to believe than they are to believe uh, the Scriptures. 
The ark is rudderless, apparently. Doesn't seem to have any means of guiding it, guidance, which suggests that Noah is trusting the Lord to guide the direction uh, of the ark. It has a roof, it says, um, along about verse 16, make a roof for the ark. That's an unusual word. It could mean a skylight. It could mean an opening uh, that's all or partly around the top for the bringing in of light uh, and fresh air. Uh, it's very, it could be an overhanging roof. There's a lot of ways that you could conceive of that. That's a, that's a difficult word to, to understand. Um, verse 17 tells us that the extent of the destruction is bigger than we might imagine initially. I will bring a flood upon the waters of the earth to destroy all flesh which is, in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. Now, there are people who will say they actually believe in the authority of Scripture. I believe that they are even believers in Jesus who will say that this is just describing a local flood. My hope today is to demonstrate that that is not possible to hold that view and accept the language as it is written in the scripture. All flesh under heaven, everything on the earth shall die. People go, well, the earth could be translated land, so it's just the local land. Well, let's keep reading chapter seven for just a second. If you would just look at chapter seven, verse four. I have, and every living thing I have made, I will blot out from the face of the ground. It's another word. And then there's these alls and everys all through this passage that you're going to have to trip over. And you'll see what I mean when we get to these next sections. In verses 18 through 22 of chapter 6, we see the obedience that Noah has to the offer of God for protection. Verse 18 God says he's going to establish a covenant with Noah. There's an agreement that God makes with Noah. We'll find out that that's on the basis of faith, not as a result of his works, that his works are a result of his faith, not the other way around. There's the preservation of animal life in verses 8, 19, and 20. Every living thing of all flesh, you'll bring true of every sort to keep them alive. They shall be male and female, Back then, there was no problem with distinguishing the fact that there were two genders. Of birds according to their kinds, animals according to their kinds, every creeping thing on the ground according to its kind, two of every sort come in to keep them alive. And then verse 21, the provision of food for the preservation of life. Take with you every sort of food that's eaten, store it up, it will serve as food, both for you and for the animals. The conclusion, verse 22, Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. What a powerful verse. What a convicting verse. Can we say as a church family, East White Oak Bible Church family, we did this. We did all that God commanded us. Can we say that as our own individual families? Can we say that as individuals? Convicting, isn't it, to consider? Verses seven, uh, chapter 7, verses 1 through 5, there's the command to enter the ark. We have the righteousness of Noah. I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Uh, his righteousness is a result of his faith, as we will see in Hebrews eleven seven. Take with you, and now he's bringing in seven pairs of the clean animals, male and his mate, pair of animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, seven pairs of the birds of the heavens, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the earth. For in seven days, I will send rain on the earth, 40 days and 40 nights, and every living thing that I have made, I will blot out from the face of the ground. And then what do we have? We have the same refrain that we see in chapter 6, verse 22, Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. Now we have the entrance into the ark, verses 6 through 10. 
Noah was 600 years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood of clean animals, of animals that are not clean, of birds and everything that creeps on the ground. Two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God commanded Noah. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. We've got the uh, who's entering the ark and a week goes by from the ordering to the beginning of the flood. Now in verses 11 through 24 of chapter 7. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth and the windows of the heavens were opened and rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife, and the three wives of his sons with them, entered the ark. They and every beast according to its kind, all the livestock according to their kind, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature, they went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh, in which there is the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded, and the Lord shut him in. The flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed, increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. The waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all, listen to the all and everys here, all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains covering them 15 cubits deep, and all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. You might say, okay, can you say that one more time? Yes, verse 23, he blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. Well, can you say it one more time? They were blotted out from the earth. Was there anybody left? Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. We're given a precise date for the beginning of the flood, 600th year of Noah's life, second month, 17th day of the month. That's when it began. Either there, we are given a precise date for the beginning of a worldwide flood, either this is real or it's made up. I just don't see that there's any middle ground here. And there are two actions that are stated for the creating of the water for the flood or two actions create the flood. <clears throat> there are waters that are in the fountains of the deep that burst forth, verse 11, and the windows of the heavens were opened. So the rain came down and the floods came up. Two actions created. There's something of water that is stored in the earth that are bursting out, and then there is rain that is coming down out of the sky. Let me just give you a couple of evidence of two small portions of these fountains of the deep. Uh, one is where, if you live in the town of Normal, you get your water. It's the Muhammad Aquifer. It's the most important aquifer here in East Central Illinois. It's made of sand and gravel. It's part of the buried Muhammad Bedrock Valley. It goes under 15 counties and ranges from 50 to 200 feet thick. It supplies 100 million gallons of water every day for public water use, uh, industrial supply, and irrigation. The Muhammad Aquifer supplies about 850,000 people with water. Aren't we glad for the Muhammad Aquifer? 
There's one that's a little bigger in the Midwest, the Ogallala Aquifer, uh, out in Nebraska, Kansas, Oklahoma, and Texas. Uh, average depth of the water in that aquifer is 180 feet. It covers 174,000 square miles. And the depth of the water ranges from, from depth from the surface ranges from uh, zero to 1,000 feet below the surface. That's a, that's a bigger aquifer even than the Muhammad Aquifer. And these are just two tiny ones in the world, okay, that are all over the place. And here's an area we know hardly anything about. We don't know what is underneath the ocean floor. If you're interested in exploring and knowing where human beings have such a very, very tiny, small base of knowledge, think ocean floor, okay? We don't know anything about it. So those of you that are curious, you might want to do it. There's a reason we don't know. It's because it's hard, okay? Just so you know. But the point is, is that there's all kinds of places over the world where these fountains of the deep still reside, where they burst forth, the rain comes down from the sky, all together we end up with a worldwide flood. It rains for 40 days and 40 nights. Now, one of the questions that you want to ask is, where did the water come from and where did it go? Well, God does miracles. He made everything in six days. If that, he can make everything in six, he can certainly flood it in 40. Uh, there aren't many miracles, however, where God makes something out of nothing. And so we try to explain them. For example, the coin in the fish's mouth that Jesus had Peter go and catch and then go pay his taxes. You know, those are, those are always things where we, well, how did that happen? You know, or how did they cross the Red Sea? Or all those different kinds of things. There's all kinds of ways that God does miracles. Let me review some of the ways that God does miracles. God sometimes does a miracle by preserving something which should become nothing. So the burning bush should become nothing. It should get burned up, but it's not. That's a miracle, preserving something that should be nothing. There was a widow in Elijah's day who had grain and oil, and it didn't run out. It should have run out. God preserves something which should become nothing. Another way God does miracles is he transforms something into another thing, like Moses' rod becoming a snake, or the Nile River becoming blood, or Jesus turning water into wine. God transforming something into another thing. Uh, another way God does miracles is he multiplies something into more of the same thing. So the widow's oil keeps pouring out. Or in 2 Kings 4, a hundred people are fed with only 20 loaves. Or the feeding of the 5,000 or the feeding of the 4,000 is where God multiplies something into more of the same thing. Another way that God does miracles is that he makes something behave contrary to its usual way. So, for example, an axe head that floats. It's behaving in an unusual manner. That's a, a miracle. Now, in thinking about all the different kinds of variety of ways God does miracles, it's an open question in my mind if there are any miracles past creation where God may, still makes stuff out of nothing. It, I don't know. It might be. A similar miracle like that happens when the dead are raised to life, right? I mean, God making something, life, out of something that's not there. But uh, I think God is remarkably creative in his abilities to do miracles in a variety of ways. There's this beautiful passage in Romans 4, verse 17, where Paul's talking about salvation, Abraham and all that, and as it is written, I've made you the father of many nations in the presence of God in whom he believed. And quite often when Paul mentions God, he's got to say something about God. And so here's what, Moses, or what, what Paul says about God. God gives life to the dead and calls into existence 
the things that do not exist. So when we start to debate about, well, how could there possibly be enough water for a flood, you know, and all those kinds of questions, what I want to say is, look at how God has done stuff, and he's plenty creative to be able to accomplish an amazing feat of creating a worldwide flood. Noah and his family enter the ark along with the animals, the families mentioned first in verse 13, then every beast, all the livestock, every creeping thing, every bird, a reminder of Genesis 1, isn't it, of uh, all these different animals according to its kind. So creation is this great expansion of how wonderful it is, everything according to its kind. And Genesis 7 is this great contraction, everything according to its kind is going to be destroyed. Uh, the animals go two by two, an ordered procession being loaded in. We don't know how that worked. Uh, the Sunday school um, paper always had them just kind of doing it by themselves and Noah just standing there, right? Uh, maybe that's the case. Maybe Noah had something to do with it. I don't know. It just They go two by two. And verse 16 is a clear description that there are two and only two genders uh, and then for the, for the third time, at the end of verse 16, we have this God as God commanded him, and the Lord shut the door. Notice there's things that Noah does, and there's things that only God can do. And God's the one who shuts the door. We'll find out that God's the one who ends up opening the door to Noah too. The flood's a universal flood. Uh, it continues 40 days, so high that it goes, uh, the water increases greatly. Do you see that verse 18? The waters prevailed, increased greatly on the earth. And the language, verses 19 and 20, all the high mountains were covered, uh, about six feet above the highest mountain. All flesh died, verse 21. Uh, verse 22, everything that breathed died. Verse 23, God blotted out every living thing. People, animals, creeping things, birds. Again, the language of Genesis 7 reversed. Verse 23, only Noah was left. Now, if you believe in a local flood, the language here of verses 17 through 23, you have to strain at it. The water lasted 150 days, which means God established the means for the receding of the waters, as well as the expansion of the waters on the surface of the earth. Now, I am not a geologist or the son of a geologist, but it does help us in thinking about why there are all these sea creature fossils that are on tops of mountains to believe that there was a worldwide flood. So, for example, this is from the, uh, what geologists would term the Cambrian period, but there's Triassic ichthyosaurs that are on the Swiss Alps and in Patagonia in Chile. How does that happen? Now, when I was a kid, there were two major worldviews here. There's a worldwide flood and there's time plus chance. And the time plus chance people said, there's really no big catastrophes. It's just one long, smooth, orderly process of following how things work to get the geologic column. But now, they've had to reassess and acknowledge, no, we have to have some catastrophes in order to understand how the world that we've got. Okay, so... There's local catastrophes. Uh, sometimes they say a, a meteor slammed into the earth. Uh, there's all kinds of theories about these various catastrophes. But in the suppression of the truth, the only thing they won't accept is that there was a worldwide flood. <laughs> um, so the fact is that now pretty much everybody acknowledges that there has to be some ancient catastrophes. The question is, what kind and how did they come and who did it? And the Bible is saying that there was this worldwide flood in which everything, everything except Noah 
and his family and the animals that were on the ark died. So now let's look at verses uh, um, uh, 1 through 19 of chapter 8. The flood ends. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep, the windows of the heavens were closed, the rain from the heavens was restrained, and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated, and in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. At the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him to the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him anymore. In the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him, every beast, every creeping thing and every bird, Everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. I love this phrase, verse 1, but God remembered Noah. There's a lot of places. God remembered the agony of the people of Israel in bondage in Egypt. God remembered Hannah in her childlessness. God remembers Noah. Doesn't mean like, oh, I forgot all about him. I wonder what's going on down there. No, no, no. That's not what this is. This is a special demonstration of God's affections, his compassions, his tender mercy. He remembers Noah. And then the means of the receding of the waters is described. God made a wind blow. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were shut off. There is a continual receding of the water. And then the ark rests on the, notice the plural, the mountains of Ararat. A general region is described, which is where Uh, The ancient people of Uartu ended up living, which is why it gets the name Ararat. And uh, I I just want to note that there are all kinds of people that are out there claiming to have found the ark or are searching for the ark on, quote, Mount Ararat. Let me explain something to you about the difference between crazy archaeology and scientific archaeology. Scientific archaeology selects a site and seeks to find what's there. And they're not looking for something, they're just looking to see what they find, what they discover. Our children are actually going to be involved in a uh, uh, understanding a little bit about archaeology this summer. And if you're interested in knowing more about it, you could actually volunteer for children's ministry, right? Little commercial, okay? Uh, to find out more about archaeology. But scientific archaeology, you go to a site and you just see what's there. Crazy archaeology is saying, I'm looking for something and I'm going to go try to find it. Okay? That's crazy archaeology. Okay? You know why? Because you'll raise a whole bunch of money and then what do you have to do? You have to find it. And you know what everybody does that says that they're going to find Noah's Ark? 
They quote unquote find it. They didn't find it. But they have to somehow justify themselves. So be careful about that when you're thinking about what is genuine archaeology from what I would term crazy archaeology. Okay? Um, that puts Indiana Jones, by the way, in the category of crazy archaeology, right? Okay, just so you know. He's not a real professor at a real university, okay? Okay, now we're two and a half months of continuing to abate the flood here, uh, verses four and five, and then the tops of the mountains are visible. In verses six through 12, Noah tests the viability of exiting the ark. Verses six through nine, he waits 40 more days, sends out a raven and a dove, he determines it's not good. Verses 10 through 12, he waits seven more days and sends out the dove again. The dove returns with an olive branch. Uh, he concludes that the waters have receded. He waits seven more days and the dove doesn't return. Verse 13, he waits another 30 plus days and opens the cover of the ark and still he waits. Verse 14, Noah waits almost two more months. He has now been in the ark for one year and 10 days since the flood began. Verse 15, how does he know when to leave the ark? It's not by all of his tests. It's not wrong to do the tests, but that's not how he knows when to leave the ark. Verse 15, God said to Noah, go out from the ark. He goes when God tells him he can leave. And every living thing, all flesh, birds, animals, creeping things, he says, take them out too, so that they may repopulate. They may be fruitful and multiply on the earth, verse 17. Again, borrowed language from chapter 1. God made everything and said to man, be fruitful and multiply. Now he picks up on that language and says, now everything, be fruitful and multiply, repopulate. Right? And that's what happened. They all left the ark. Now, I have five things by way of conclusion that I want to share with you about what we should take away from this worldwide flood. First, which is what we just talked about, the waiting. Think about all of the waiting. How, what do you think the ark smelled like after a year and 10 days? Do you think maybe... Shem, Ham, or Japheth's wives were going, when can we leave the ark? You think Mrs. Noah might have said, I think it might be time to leave the ark? They wait and they wait. Listen, some of you have problems that are so huge you can't solve them. They're like a worldwide flood. You can't fix it. And in that moment, it's not wrong to test the waters, to test things, sending out the raven and the dove. That's not a wrong thing for Noah to do. But ultimately, what does he have to do? He has to wait until God tells him, this is when you can go. And the issue, I think, is that there are some things for which we have to wait for God's actions. And to wait on the Lord is an action. It's not passive, it's an action. Those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. Second application, will you go to God's place of safety? Will you go right now to God's place of safety? The ark was a place of safety for, for Noah, right? Um, here's how Jesus used the story of Noah in his teaching. Concerning that day or hour, the day or hour of the coming of the Son of Man, the day that's coming of judgment on the whole earth by fire. No one knows, not the angels of heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. As in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day 
your Lord is coming. But know this, if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Now, it's a big challenge to figure out just who is Jesus talking to in Matthew 24. Is he talking to people who are believers or is he talking to people who are not believers? And I'm going to tell you, yes. <laughs> so if you're a believer, what does this mean? If you put your hope and faith in Jesus, what does the story of Noah tell you? There is a limited time that we have left on this earth. How much of that time are you going to spend monkeying around, playing around as a Christian? How much of that time are you going to spend displeasing your Lord? And then when he comes, you go, oh man, if only I had known. Nobody in heaven will say, man, I wish I'd monkeyed around more and toyed around in my Christian life. Nobody will say that. Will you go to God's place of safety? But then I also believe Jesus is talking to people who are not believers. There's coming a destruction, not of, by water, but by fire. Jesus Christ is going to return and destroy this world. And there is a heaven where we will enjoy the presence of God forever, and there is a hell, a place of torment, where we will suffer forever, and the difference between whether you go to heaven or to hell is what you do with Jesus Christ. Will you trust him to forgive you of your sin? Will you give him your life and say, God, be merciful to me in your tender mercies that you have declared in the Bible do not allow me into your righteous holy judgment. I deserve it, but do not put me there. Put me in your place of safety. And you know what God will do? He will do that. He will put you in that place of safety forever. You're his. A third application is to understand that righteousness comes by faith. Noah's not good because he obeyed. He's righteous because of his faith and his faith produced good in him. By faith, Noah being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. It's by faith. You escape God's judgment, not because, okay, I'm going to try harder, I'm going to do better. You, you, you escape God's judgment by trusting Christ and his righteousness on your behalf. Another application, God is going to judge rightly. Now that's a comfort for us because we live in an unjust world. You know, there's a lot of talk about justice these days and it's not happening the way that people want and you can almost say any statement and there'll be somebody that'll contradict it. There's coming a day when God's gonna settle it all. He will settle all accounts and he'll do it exactly right. And so if you have suffered at injustice, just know this, God's gonna set it straight. He will set all unrighteousness, all injustice straight. Second Peter 2, if he, God, did not spare the ancient world but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, then the Lord knows a, how to rescue the godly from trials, godly people who've trusted Jesus to forgive them their sin, and he knows how to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. He can do it all. He will set it all straight. The passage that we read this morning to begin our service helps us know that God keeps his promises. He promised a flood to Noah and it came. He promises his 
steadfast love to Israel, and he will keep his promise. Isaiah 54 says this, your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, the Holy One of Israel is your redeemer, the God of the whole earth he's called, for the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God, for a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you, in overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord your redeemer. In other words, God's a God who forgives and restores and shows loving kindness to his people. And then he says, this is why we can know that. This is like the days of Noah to me, as I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you. God keeps his promises. The evil one wants to accuse you and tell you you're never good enough. And you know what? The answer is you won't be ever good enough, but Jesus is good enough for you. And so don't believe that accuser. Believe the loving kindness of God and trust in him. And you're in good place. You're in good shape. That's how God does because he keeps his promises. And more generally, I want to say about Isaiah 54, God, this, is a, this is a passage for all of God's people, yes, but more particularly for the people of Israel, God keeps his promises to Israel, and he's not going to forsake the people of Israel. There will be a kingdom with Jesus as Lord and King of Israel. Last thing that I'll say, <clears throat> God's judgment is sure. Ezekiel 14 is an unusual passage. The word of the Lord came to me, Ezekiel writes, and here's what the Lord of the Lord is. Son of man, when a land sins against me by acting faithlessly, and I stretch out my hand against it and break its supply of bread and send famine upon it and cut off from it man and beast, even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, They would deliver but their own lives by their righteousness, declares the Lord God. Or if I send a pestilence into that land and pour out my wrath upon it with blood to cut it off from man and beast, even if Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, as I live, declares the Lord God, they would deliver neither son nor daughter. They would deliver but their own lives by their righteousness." You understand what Ezekiel, what the Lord is saying through Ezekiel here? He's saying, let's say a land is sinning. Now, we don't know how long God's patience waits until he says, that's it, their time is up. We don't know how long that is for a culture. But what what the Lord is saying through Ezekiel is, there comes a time when God says of a culture, that's it. And even if Noah and Job and um, Daniel were to come and cry out on behalf of that culture, God says, I'd only save Noah and Daniel and Job. I wouldn't save that culture. Now I ask you, Are we living in a land that sins against the Lord by acting faithlessly? Are there supply problems? Break its supply of bread and send famine upon it. I I have no idea how long God's patience waits for our culture. I only know that there will be an end to it. And once you cross that point, it is a point of no return in God's view. Even if Noah and Daniel and Job were to cry out to God to intercede on behalf of that culture, God says, nope, I wouldn't even save their families. I'd save those three. Be aware that the hour is drawing near. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing 
of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. When I was a little boy, there was a billboard on a road that we traveled nearly every day. I saw that billboard hundreds of times. It had clouds, and then there is a sunburst coming through the cloud, and there was a big part of the sign at the top said, Christ is coming. And on the bottom, are you ready? Christ is coming. Are you ready? The story of Noah tells us of the preserving character of God's judgment. And it is a warning that there is yet a judgment to come. May we be found in the ark of safety, which is the cross of Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, help us to be sober in this present age about the world we live in, and may we be that your people, seeking your face, turning from our wicked ways. And we would ask that you would hear from heaven. There is nothing short of the need of the hour being a heaven-sent revival, a revival of your people and of a passion for you to worship you and know you and for the lost to help them to see the glory and beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And a revival, yes, indeed, we pray in our culture that we would turn from the wickedness with which we have played with for way too long and sought to embrace, seek to embrace the eternally loving kindness of God our Savior. We trust you, Jesus. You are our King. Guide us in these fearful days that we may know you and walk with you. In Jesus' name, amen.